that was one of the performances, uh, the Fifth Dimension were one of the bands that were featured in that documentary, and it's just a good, great song. Um, just feeling like, ugh, ugh. It, I mean, that song almost seems uh, like the opposite of uh, all that's happening right now. There's so much death, and um, just personally, I've known a lot of folks who have lost people very recently, like three people who have lost their parents, so wanting to honor them um, recently, that is um, Elaine and Jim and Don, um, folks who should still be here. And uh, it just seems so backwards that uh, we live in a world where so many people who have spent their time helping people are not here, yet uh, folks like Henry Kissinger are still alive, Rupert Murdoch, and... Uh, Charles Koch and like all these, you know, war profiteers and people who have used their time on this planet to make things more difficult for people and have uh, promoted a lot of hate and bigotry and cruelty and death. And it just seems so backwards. And I say that on the show all the time. It just feels so disturbing. It's what we're, what we're living in. And also for Diane O'Debra, who recently passed away, um, far too young. And uh, it was just, uh, it's, have, it's weird when you have like memories of people and it's like maybe only in passing, but just like a kind of essence or uh, kindness that they bring. And Diane brought that. And also a sense of humor. And I, it's just, it feels so, it's uh, just really sad. So that's kind of where I'm at right now mentally. Um, we'll be sharing some news stories of things that are happening, some things that are pretty egregious. Um, do this because it's important just to have an understanding of what is happening in the world and how we can push back against it to create a more equitable world where everyone uh, can feel safe. <laughs> it seems so far from the world that we're living in, though, right now, especially now. But I think it's it's possible. It's definitely possible. It's just a matter of what can be done to get us there. So we're broadcasting from Mutiny Radio. We're on Ramatouche Ohlone land, and for more information, go to ramatouche.org, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org. You can donate, as well as learn about the history. And we also have a land acknowledgement tab on our page at weeklyrev.org with uh, more links as well. So please do check out those sites. So I'm going to start off with an article that, uh, I mean, every day there's another reason to dislike cops, right? Am I wrong? No, I'm not. Um, I'm one of those people who I would love to be wrong. I would love to be like, oh, wait, I've been wrong about this this entire thing, and I would hope that I would be like, oh, okay, let me you know, unpack my beliefs and everything and uh, apologize for being wrong. And in this case, uh, every day I just like this, living with this militarized police force. Also another great um, documentary I wanted to recommend is called Ruler Dreams, and that's also, I'm going to make sure I'm saying that correctly. That was also on Hulu. And it was about roller skating on Venice Beach in like the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, Roller Dreams. It's on uh, Hulu as well. And it was just really well done. And, um, you know, every time something's going well, it seems like uh, militarization of police seems to be one thing that prevents um, positive things from continuing to happen. And just also, I mean, not just that, but also the greed and white supremacy and the idea of gentrification and folks coming over and taking over land and kicking people out and trying to profit off that 
It's just, it's so fucking sickening. This is an article that came out on September 8th um, from Sam Levin from The Guardian UK. And there's also a lot of pushback against The Guardian um, because they're fucking transphobic as hell. So I did want to also comment on that. Um, this story aside, um, says, uh, title revealed, LAPD officers told to collect social media data on every civilian they stop. That sounds totally normal, right? An internal police chief memo shows employees were directed to use field interview cards, which would then be reviewed. And again, it's like, who are, who are giving them these orders? I have a good friend who has reminded me um, it's important to focus one's anger and rage against the folks who are telling the cops what to do in the first place and are hiring them and are funding them. The Los Angeles Police Department has directed its officers to collect the social media information of every civilian they interview, including individuals who are not arrested or accused of a crime, according to records shared with The Guardian. Copies of the field interview cards that police complete when they question civilians reveal that LAPD officers are instructed to record a civilian's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media accounts alongside basic biographical information. An internal memo further shows that the police chief, Mike, uh, Michael Moore, uh, but not the Michael Moore, this is a Michael without the A in, his, in the first name, uh, told employees that it was critical to collect the data for use in quote-unquote investigations, arrests, and prosecutions, and warned that supervisors would review cards to ensure they were complete. Um, how about we uh, review uh, police's? How about their uh, social media when they're, I mean, it, uh, let me continue. The documents, which were obtained by the not-for-profit organization the Brennan Center for Justice, have raised concerns about civil liberties and the potential for mass surveillance of civilians without justification. There are real dangers about police having all of this social media identifying information at their fingertips, said Rachel Levinson-Waldman, deputy director at the Brennan Center, noting that the information was probably stored in a database that could be used for a wide range of purposes. The Brennan Center conducted a review of 40 other police agencies in the U.S. and was able to find another department that required social media collection on interview cards, though many have not publicly disclosed copies of the cards. The organization also obtained records about the LAPD's social media surveillance technologies, which have raised questions about the monitoring of activist groups, including Black Lives Matter. In 2015, the department added social media accounts as a line on the physical field interview cards, according to a newly unearthed memo from the previous LAPD chief, Charlie Beck. Similar to a nickname or an alias, a person's online persona or identity used for social media can be highly beneficial to investigations, he wrote. Meanwhile, like, neo-Nazis are, like, flooding the internet with all their fucking hate and, and violence. If they actually fucking cared about, you know, protecting people, they would... They would, you know, know who to go after. Anyway, while the social media collection has gone largely unnoticed, the LAPD's use of field interview cards has prompted controversy. Last October, prosecutors filed criminal charges against three officers in the LAPD's Metro Division, accusing them of using the cards to falsely label civilians as gang members after stopping them. That unit also has a history of stopping black drivers at disproportionately high rates, and according to the LA Times, has more frequently filled out cards for black and Latino residents they stopped. Meanwhile, more than half of the civilians stopped by Metro officers and documented in the cards were not arrested or cited, the Times reported. 
The fact that a department under scrutiny for racial profiling was also engaged in broad-scale social media account collection is troubling, said Levinson Waldman. Furthermore, when police obtain social media usernames, it opens the doors, door for officers to monitor an individual's connections and quote-unquote friends online, creating additional privacy concerns. It allows for a huge expansion of network surveillance, said Levinson Waldman, noting how police and prosecutors have previously used Facebook photos and likes to make dubious or false allegations of criminal gang activity. Hamid Khan of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition noted that the LAPD also shares data with federal law enforcement agencies through fusion centers and has previously used predictive policing technologies that rely on data collected by officers in the field and which can criminalize communities of color. This is like stop and frisk, he said, of the use of field interview cards. And this is happening with the clear goal of surveillance. The LAPD, he noted, has allowed officers to pose undercover to investigate groups, meaning officers can create fake social social media accounts to infiltrate groups. Oy. Dr. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA, said she had long suspected the LAPD conducted targeted tracking of specific groups or individual accounts, but was surprised to learn of the default collection of this information in everyday encounters. She fears that this could be part of a massive surveillance operation. The copies of the cards obtained by the Brennan Center also reveal that police are instructed to ask civilians for their social security numbers, whoa, and are advised to tell interviewees that it must be provided under federal law. Kathleen Kim, a Loyola law professor and immigrants' rights expert who previously served on the LA Police Commission, said she was not aware of any law requiring individuals to disclose social security numbers to local police. And she said she was shocked to learn about the social security section on the cards, noting that it was so antithetical to the department's own policies and clearly violated the spirit of sanctuary laws, which are supposed to prevent officers from asking civilians their immigration status. The LAPD had previously taken steps to ensure it was not requesting place of birth information to improve trust with undocumented communities, she said. The LAPD told The Guardian on Tuesday that the field interview card policy was being updated, but declined to provide further details. The revelations of broad social media data collection also raised concerns about how police monitor activists. The Brennan Center obtained LAPD documents related to Geofedia, a private social media monitoring firm that partners with law enforcement and has previously marketed itself as a tool to monitor BLM protests. One internal document, which is updated, oh, excuse me, which is undated, but appeared to be several years old, listed the keywords and hashtags that the LAPD appeared to be monitoring throughout Geofedia, and they were almost exclusively related to Black Lives Matter and similar leftist protests. It included hashtag BLMLA, hashtag Say Her Name, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, hashtag Fuck Donald Trump, and the names of people killed by LA police that prompted major protests. The list did not include any hashtags for right-wing demonstrations and far-right movements, which have grown increasingly violent in recent years in the region. The context in which these search terms were used is unclear from the records provided, and the LAPD did not respond to questions. The city attorney's office said the LAPD stopped using Geofedia around 2017 and that the agency did not have a current list of keywords for social media monitoring. Abdullah, who helped organize around many of the hashtags the LAPD was monitoring, noted that BLM's actions were nonviolent. They're following black protesters who are organizing to stop violence and saying, stop killing us, and, uh, and are 
And are they turning a blind eye to those who are actually violent, the white supremacist organizations that are growing in number? In a 2016 memo to LAPD included in the records, another social media tracking company, Data Miner, and that's data, that's a miner without the E, listed under success stories, it's tracking of a BLMLA protest outside a jail, saying the firm uncovered the first images of people at the protest, as well as its tracking of a protest featuring a giant blow-up statue of Trump. The local news site, LA Taco, reported last week that LAPD has used data miner to monitor last year's BLM protests for George Floyd. Jacinta Gonzalez, uh, an organizer with the advocacy group Mijente, and Jacinta's been a guest on the show um, um, a few years ago, um, said the LAPD records appeared to fill a pattern of how police in America respond to protest organizations. There's a long history of law enforcement using surveillance, whether in person or through digital technologies to attack black and Latino movements fighting for racial justice. The Brennan Center's records further revealed the LAPD is now seeking to use technology from a new company, Media Sonar, which also attracts social media for police. Fuck them. And if you're working for any of these companies, go seriously quit your job. That's the, it's the best case scenario. I mean, just leave. In the 2021 budget, the LAPD allotted $73,000 to purchase media sonar software to help the department address a potential threat or incident before it, its occurrence. The extent of the LAPD's media sonar use is unclear, but the company's communications with the LAPD have raised questions. In one message, the firm said its services can be used to stay on top of drug-slash-gang-slash-weapon slang keywords and hashtags, Levinson Waldman said. He feared the company or police would misinterpret quote-unquote slang or lack proper context on local groups and language, and she noted research showing that online threats made by gang-affiliated groups largely don't escalate to violence. Media Sonar also told the LAPD it's, it offers pre-built keyword groups to help jumpstart implementation of threat models and helps police cast a wide net. Ugh. The firm also said it would provide a full digital snapshot of an individual's online presence, including all related personas and connections. The messages from Media Sonar suggested that the department needed significant safeguards to ensure that keywords didn't dis- disparately target marginalized communities and checks to ensure the data was accurate, Levinson Waldman said. Records show that the LAPD has requested federal funding for Media Sonar for quote unquote terrorism prevention. Aren't the police the ones who are going around killing people? All right. Ugh, but some advocates are concerned it would be used for protests. In March, <coughs> excuse me. In March, a city council report analyzing the LAPD's response to BLM protests recommended the department purchase software to analyze social media content. Media Sonar did not respond to inquiries about its relationship with the LAPD. The LAPD did not respond to requests for comment about Media Sonar. Oof. So again, this article is from uh, Sam Levin from The Guardian UK, and we'll be posting a link to this on our website over at weeklyrev.org. I'm going to sip some water, uh, rest my voice a bit, and let's listen to some more music. So this is a song called Galacticana by Strand of Oaks.
that was love is the law by the suburbs before that we heard silly girl by the descendants and before that turned folks with black decana coming up next uh, i'm going to stay on the same theme and it's a thread a very helpful thread i read recently on twitter from alec caricatessanis carrot really this is what happens when uh, one doesn't uh edit their shows. You get to hear me try out names and uh, sometimes mispronounce them. Alec Karakatsanis. Oh, I didn't think it was going to be that rough. My apologies. Anyway, um, really informative uh, person to follow on Twitter. You can follow Alec at, at Equality Alec. Updated thread. You're going to hear a lot about how cops need more resources because crime is surging, and that's in quotation marks, in the next few months. It's propaganda, and here's how you can respond. So this is super helpful because uh, I find it's just, uh, there's so much misinformation out there, and it's really helpful to have, if you're able to to respond to the, the lies, um, it's helpful to have ways to do so. And this t- thread came out on August 4th of this year, and I'll also share uh, a link to this on our page. First, what constitutes a crime is determined by people in power who have a lot of money. And let's see, and there's, then there's a link to another thread. And the first part of that is a few thoughts about crime. Uh, the concept of crime is created and manipulated by people who have power. Throughout U.S. history, powerful people have defined crime in ways that benefit wealthy people and white people. And next, uh, second, the cops manipulate crime stats for political reasons. Cops don't even count the violent and sexual crimes that cops commit which would entirely reverse the crime stats in every city and state. If all the crimes committed by police and jail-slash-prison guards was counted, it would completely change police crime stats that these experts, and experts in quotation marks, uh, regurgitate in the media to support police propaganda. Third, police ignore most quote-unquote crime. They only look for some crime committed by some people in some places. A school fight in a poor neighborhood is recorded as a crime, but a fight in a wealthy private school is not. And then there's the post. Uh, read hundreds of examples here. And let's click on this link here. This is one of those threads that there's so many different links and there's so many uh, paths to go down. And this links to an article from the Yale Law Journal, The Punishment Bureaucracy, How to Think About Criminal Justice Reform. And this was written in March of 2019. And uh, it looks like a lot of... Uh, Many of many quotes and it's a very long article here, but I recommend checking that out. And that's also linked in our thread here. Fourth, police have incentives to focus on some crimes, and again, crimes is in quotation marks, and not others. They make billions of dollars in overtime for low-level arrests. This is one reason cops have ignored hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits while making record record drug arrests for decades. And then there's a link to uh, an article by Corey Rayburn Young, uh, How to Lie with Rape Statistics, from the Iowa Law Review. <sighs> Fifth, police corruption in search of extra cash and weapons affects all of what cops do and what they tell us about what they do. For example, police take more property through civil forfeiture than all property crimes combined. I want to... I In my alternate 
in an alternate universe, um, I've got nothing against wheat pasting. I feel like I, I just should get my shit together and do it and or get some folks together to do it. But I feel like so many of these great pieces of information would be great just to like, put them around the city on walls just so like folks can like see them and just see the truth of what's out there as opposed to like the lies that are just oftentimes printed in the paper and and discussed everywhere. But yeah, that's uh, I think that that's a really important one to uh comment on and if you get sucked into any of those Twitter threads about having to how police are helpful, you can say how they actually cause uh more more theft than anyone else. They take more property through civil forfeiture than all property crimes combined. Yeah. Ugh. Sixth, only 4% of all cop time goes to what they call quote-unquote violent crime, and cops are terrible at solving quote-unquote violent crime. Overwhelming evidence establishes that cops in prisons actually increase future crime, so cops are terrible at preventing harm. And then they provide a link of how do police actually spend their time in the New York Times. Seventh, what cops call quote-unquote crime is different from what causes harm. For example... Tobacco kills 40, 480,000 people every year in the U.S., including 41,000 from secondhand smoke. These preventable deaths dwarf police-related data on deaths from the drugs cops call crime. Eight. Eighth. The same is true of water and air pollution for fraudulent and fraudulent home foreclosures, all of which cause huge death rates that kill far more people than what cops call homicides. Ninth. Wage theft, that's a big one. Wage theft by employers isn't in crime stats because it's almost never investigated by cops, but it costs low-wage workers an estimated $50 billion a year, dwarfing the cost of all cop-reported robberies, burglaries, larcenies, and car thefts combined. Tenth, did you know that rich banks make about as much in fraudulent overdraft fees as all of what police call property crime combined in the U.S. Did you know that none of this makes it into police property crime statistics? And then there's a link from prospect.org. Big banks charge million, billions, excuse me, billions in overdraft fees. Let me finish. Let me click on this so I can finish reading the headline. Big banks charged billions in overdraft fees during the worst months of the pandemic. That was from April of 2021 by Alexander Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N from uh, American, the American prospect. Oof. Next, 11th. There are millions of yearly white collar crimes by big corporations and the wealthy people who own them, but police don't put them in their crime stats. Read more here about why cops distort the concepts of crime and actual harm. And then there's a link to an article from currentaffairs.org. Excuse me. And the title is. Why crime isn't the question and police aren't the answer. I may have to read that on the air later. Next. Twelfth. Police will say, but even if crime is politicized, and even if violent crime is actually down in 2021, shootings are up. Well, gun sales are up 40%, and we're in a global pandemic mental health crisis. Murder is a problem, but not one related to more cops. Thirteenth. The initial 2021 trend of more shootings is especially accelerated in places that increase police funding, and almost no city decreased police funding significantly. See a few examples. And then I have another thread here. Fourteenth. Almost all reporting about a crime surge uses low base rates, so that percentage 
changes can appear high. An increase of 10 shootings to 12 shootings is reported as a 20% increase. 15th, media often focuses on month-to-month or year-to-year numbers, emphasizing different crimes at different times if one goes up, obscuring larger trends like this. We have among the lowest murders in the last 50 years, and other countries have, with fewer cops have way fewer murders. 16th, cops slash media thus cherry-pick data. The result of this manipulation is one of the big scandals of our time. One of the big scandals of our time. For decades, the public has hugely overestimated crime rates. And then there's a link to this article. Um, Many Americans are convinced crime is rising in the U.S. They're wrong. But their their fear makes everyone less safe. And that's from 538, and it was written by Maggie Korth. That's K-O-E-R-T-H. Next, 17th. There is no evidence that cops in prison reduce any crime, especially that they reduce crime, quote-unquote, relative to other alternatives. Think about what could have been done to help people without the trillions of dollars spent on the war on drugs. And then there's a thread about the war on drugs. (sighs) I'd read that, but I'd probably get too angry. As opposed to now, I'm just kind of medium angry. 18th. People telling you to give more cash to cops because of crime don't count the costs, millions of arrests, millions of separated kids, millions of lost jobs, homes, medical appointments, tens of millions of police assaults, hundreds of millions of criminal records. 19th. Those calling for more cash for cops don't tell you that the trillions of dollars spent on police prisons has been used by cops for total surveillance and to infiltrate and crush every single movement for social justice in the past 100 years. And that totally just corresponds to the last article we read. 20th. The the idea of soaring crime after a few dozen more shootings without reporting, how many people died from unstable housing, lack of access to health care, pollution, or malnutrition is how elites keep us focused on solutions of control and profit and not liberation. Finally, not all human tragedy is preventable, but quite a lot of it is, oh, I feel that, and accepting propaganda on crime and police data about that concept as a proxy for holistic public safety is the original sin of most writing in this topic. Uh, read more uh, at uh, the the Twitter handle is in, interrupt c r i m interrupt crim uh, and fight back against propaganda that wealthy interests and cop unions are feeding us. And then oh, um, this person just did the citations podcast and. Um, Ooh, we may have to uh, play that. Let's just do that then. I did have some articles lined up, and I'm also talking a lot, and it's super important to get other people's voices on here. So let's play this. This is episode 142, the summer of anti-Black Lives Matter backlash, and how... Let's see what the full title is. And how the concept of crime were shaped by the property class. This is a bit long, so let's start playing it and see. What we get here. Hmm.
For instance, the New York Times, May 11th, 2021, quote, shootings and subway attacks put crime at center of NYC mayor's race. Two weeks later, the New York Times was back, May 2021, with this, quote, a year after George Floyd, pressure to add police. And then just a couple days later, May 25th, 2021, CNN had this, quote, defund the police in existence as violent crime. The next month, June 24th, 2021, you had Reuters with defying defund police calls, Democrat Eric Adams, on July 10th, the Washington Post ran an opinion piece by Professor Raymond J. Laraja with the headline, The New York mayoral primary is a reminder. Voters are. In it, it talks about the quote unquote coalition that Democratic primary frontrunner for the royalty, Eric Adams, had assembled, which it called reminiscent of quote old alliance article kind of makes the faux populist that so-called real and quote-unquote less educated they want tough on crime unlike of course hippie democratic progressive left and the article says this about democratic adams says adams quote reminded us make up most of the party different parties than Notably on major issues, the election poll of likely showed that fear of crime weighed much more heavily on the mind of less. Yeah, so you have this narrative that's not only was oh that showed gun movement bill reform. That this is sort of a backlash. Work out in Pennsylvania. Now, there's one major problem with this. There is zero evidence in correlation between. Where 20 article by Igor Darish details why the argument against the defense. Quote, few cities cut their police. Minneapolis City the police protest, ultimately cut just $8 million from the budget while leaving the same number of cops. Despite nonstop fear-mongering from New $1 billion police cut, who was largely criticized by IPD agents. Only a dozen of the roughly eight Many of the cities that did cut police budgets Blamed revenue shortfalls caused by coronavirus pandemic rather than demonstrators. So when you compare the modest, and I mean very modest, like less than 1%, increase police, there is zero correlation. There is zero correlation between whether or not the Democrats. Obviously, the idea that criticism of defund or anti-defund or anti-defund backlash is a result of somehow undwinning <laughs> right. or Meaningfully reducing prisons. Is Remember total... how there was no police anymore, Adam, after last summer, and now crime went up. Like... Yeah, it's a total fiction. And indeed, the departments that increased the budget, which was most of them, by the way, increased the total number of police. Those, of course, all increase in murder as well. Mm-hmm. So there is 
absolutely no connection between those two things at all. The only connection they can really make with nebulous demoralizing that the protesters like gave them a sad and they decided not to like pursue I'm criminals. Quit. Yeah, they sort of sat in their car and ate donuts instead of... Because they can't show any connection. So they had to come up with this very mystical, woo-woo-ish explanation. They canceled the TV show Cops, so now actual cops have been canceled. Yeah, and so this is very sort of typical of the argument. And so what you had is you had a very brief moment where really fundamentally reconsidered what public safety what healthy communities are, what crime prevention rather police at crime, what that would look like. You had a bit of a broke of the kind of ideological up on crime work. Prosecutor's logic for like five minutes for Nike, CNN, everyone sort of, Time Warner, mm-hmm. NBA, everyone suddenly decided they cared about race. About what? And then it was sort of, okay, let's just kind of all this to charity programs, education funding, of course, there's nothing to do. Making sure that Black Lives Matter for some fucking bizarre reason, I guess we wanted to make sure the aliens could see this, this slogan. Right. Once the mural quotient was hit, they went back to... Right, and then everyone's, including de Blasio, just gave 1,200 more police. My opinion, everyone sort of moved on. Like we said, oh, no, no, we can have reform, but we're not going to actually do anything. We're going to sort of gesture towards reform. As Eric Adams, to his credit, did, because Eric Adams still was similar to Trump's in that he sort of would say contradictory things over there. So... But there's a reason why you got the New York Post enforcement because basically wanted to, and so now you have this murder rate going up. Democrats need someone to can't really blame high murder rates and Democrats Republicans, so they're going after this sort of going too far, on too far. Eric Adams shows it. Never mind that Philadelphia reelected prosecutor Krasner, and never mind that Buffalo elected mayor. Forget all that. This was one election proves that the black. I love cops all of a sudden, and of course, again, depends how you phrase the poll. But sometimes that's true, and there are lots of African Americans in the community who like cops, who do want cops. Again, for the reason option into the narrative cemented itself. There was an uptick in murder. Need the defund. We need the Black Lives Matter substance. That was all dead in the water, over, gone too far. Classic example of, like, they never had any power. I mean, this is just like, they did this with, like, a lot of Bernie stuff. Like, Bernie would campaign on Medicare for All, and then, like, he would lose, and then they, or they would lose the primary, and they'd say, this is evidence that that doesn't work. It's like, <laughs> that never was policy. That never won anything. It was, like, these things were purely theoretical. The fund was purely theoretical. They never won an election. They never had any power. Socialism failed because we sanctioned death every day. <laughs> Socialist country in the global south. Proof that it does not work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they're never given a chance to work. They're never given All these nascent defund movements left out in their infancy. Clever accounting. Not really any substantive reconsideration public safety. Some measures, there's some people. The most part, we're exactly where we want. And there's zero correlation between any meaningful scale. Because they're also going after bail. That murder rates are up in cities without any bail reform, which is the vast majority of cities. I cannot stress this enough. But they need to go after these modest reforms because they 
not only for their own failure, justify why they're they need to nip it in the bud, as Joe They need to nip any kind of reform movement. An opportunity to their ally in the White House. Or the tough on crime. Or not pro defund. Oh, they blamed, by the way, congressional law. No correlation there. It's a narrative. It has to be true. Doesn't matter what the fucking data says. It has to be the narrative moving forward. We want to talk to our guests about why that's not the case and why these movements are still worth defending, even though it's become unpopular to do. We will now be joined by Alec Karakatsan, founder and executive director of Civil Rights. Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender for years in the District of Columbia and the state of Alabama and co-founded the organization Equal Justice Under Law. The author of the book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. And you can follow him on Twitter at QualityAlec. He'll join us in just a moment. Stay with us. Okay, I meant to start that a little bit later, but uh, we'll continue listening because I do feel like this is... So again, we're listening to Citations Needed Podcast, episode 142. And this came out on August 4th, 2021. And again, we'll post all of our links over on the website at thecoolnet.org. Or you want to talk about how it's sort of... How we sort of generally understand data and helps not to all ISIS motherboard by Allegedly hearing gunshots. Talk about our specifically crime sort of. Sorry, I mean the very notion of what constitutes quote unquote crime is determined by powerful people, people who have power in societies across the world and throughout our own history here in this country have always changed the definition of what is criminal to suit their own interests. A classic example is it didn't used to be criminal to possess marijuana. The marijuana plant was not criminalized until it became useful for very powerful people to give police more discretion to arrest people. And that was associated with a desire by powerful people to give police more tools to track down, cage, arrest, and potentially deport Mexican-American immigrants. The same is true with opium. Powerful people decided to give this police the discretion to arrest people for possessing the opium substance, to give them more power over Chinese-American immigrants. The same is true with cocaine and black Americans. Powerful people decided to make that criminal. It didn't used to be criminal. It was decided to be made criminal precisely so they could give police 
more discretion to surveil and track and arrest and cage and then profit off the labor of black Americans after the Civil War. The same concept is true across the concept of crime. So for example, wagering in the streets over dice is a crime. Who wagers in the streets over dice? Mostly poor people. But wagering over international currencies or the global supply of wheat, not a crime. In fact, people who wager on those things make billions of dollars and have their names on the wings of hospitals and museums. Or housing discrimination, it's not seen as a crime. Or sexual harassment at work, these are things that cause a lot of harm, but that our society has chosen to deal with in a civil context and not a criminal context. Another example might be campaign contributions. Some countries, and, and indeed different times in this country's history, you might consider the current political funding system as bribery, the crime of bribery. We have legalized it in this country. Invading foreign countries, drone strikes, refusing to offer medicine to people or insulin to people who need it, those could all be considered crimes. And at different times and places in our country's history, different things have been crimes, like refusing to give someone an abortion or giving someone an abortion or refusing to join a union or joining a union. I guess the first point I want to make is that so much of what we think of as criminal is actually just political choices made by people in power. I think a second topic we should talk about, though, is that of the things that are criminalized, the police only search for those crimes in some places, mm -hmm. some of the time. And the, the way they make decisions over where to look for those crimes is actually even more important. So, for example, wage theft is a crime. Wage theft costs about 50 to $100 billion a year. But who commits wage theft? It's wealthy, large employers, corporations. It's almost never enforced by any police department or prosecutor's office in the country, even though, by conservative estimates, it costs as much money and damage by about a factor of five as all robbery, burglary, larceny, shoplifting, all property crimes combined. And then tax evasion costs about a trillion dollars a year. This is a crime that's committed by wealthy people. It's 20 times the damage of wage theft and about 100 times the damage of all other property crime combined, almost never enforced. Sexual assault laws are almost never enforced, while police gorge themselves on drug arrests, etc. Constantly, all over the country, they left hundreds of thousands of rape kits untested. I could go on and on. Fights in private schools, environmental pollution. There are several million environmental crimes committed every single year by companies and wealthy people in this country. They're never enforced. So I think we have to understand that background context before we have a conversation about crime. All that's true. I think some listening may say, okay, prove your point, citations, because we've been talking about crime as a social construct for part of an hour now. You've proved your point. You're all a bunch of pie-in-the-sky, sort of far-left types. But murder is rather binary. You're either dead or alive for the most part. And that murder is not something that murder across cultures has typically been found. And the Ten Commandments, Hammurabi's Code, whatever, sort of a thing that is universally seen as bad. And that murder is up. And murder's up a lot. And that this spike of some say 25%, we can debate that, that this is fueling a, or rather it's, I think it's fair to say it is, it is the fuel of a pre-existing narrative that's been around for years. Now there's a sort of statistical mm -hmm. reference point they can cling to to push back against George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, fun movement, abolish movement within the Democratic Party. I mean, we've been speaking to pretty much the, the premise of this episode. Now, people getting shot in Chicago or Parkland, Florida, that is not a social construct. That is an objective reality. I want to sort of talk about this new liberal hand-wringing about blaming the rise in murders, not on a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, which Seems like if you looked at the X factor here, that would be 
But for the most part, New York Times, Fox, CNN, they're blaming it on modest barrel reform, despite as we talk about at the beginning. But I want to talk about murder and the rise of and what people are blaming that rise on, how we've immediately skipped past messiness of debating how we can deal with that to just asserting that police are better. That your, your arch nemesis, Matt Iglesias, says police are better. German Lopez, police are better. Eric Levitz, police are better. I want to, I want to talk about that assumption and the current reactionary pushback fueled by murder to the Black Lives Matter. Well, I have, first have to dispute that he's my arch nemesis. I feel like that, that <laughs> the word nemesis conveys that he's coming at me with some kind of um, actual substance and that I'm having trouble that, overcoming. That he's an actual threat. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such a nonsense thinker, and so much of what he does is just so pathetic. I would hope he wouldn't be a nemesis. Wow. Not even worth your time. This is like the Raul Julia speech from Street Fighter. He's not even, he's, it was to you, it was a Tuesday, but go ahead. He, he's very much worth our time, though, but I don't want to be too flippant. I mean, sure, sure, he sure. communicates to millions of people every single day. And, he and supposedly shapes the Biden administration's agenda, according to Politico, but go ahead, yes. Exactly. He's, he's out there spewing just total fabrications and nonsense, and a lot of people listen to him because he is really skirting the line between conventional wisdom and police propaganda very effectively. But I think this is this question about murder is so important. First, let me just say, we have a, a violent society. We have to acknowledge that. There's a lot of violence in our society every single day, not just murder, but our society is full of people harming each other. It's full of structural violence that leads to extraordinary and preventable death every single day. And the reason I do this work and the reason I care about this topic we're talking about right now I think our society's response to this harm is fundamentally flawed in exactly the way you suggest with your question. So let me just first say, if policing made us safer and if policing prevented murder, we'd be the safest country in the world. No society in modern recorded world history has ever spent so much money on policing and cages and prosecutors and judges, right, and courts. It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't prevent murder. In fact, there is not a single shred of evidence that increased expenditures on police prevent murder. The other thing that I, I want to suggest is that we should care about violence and death much more broadly than the narrow definition of murder that police are concerned with. First of all, police don't, when they're doing the murder stats, they don't count deaths in prison. They don't count deaths by police. They don't include those in the murder rates. And they also don't include all of the people that die from lack of health care, from environmental pollution, from home foreclosures. So when a bank fraudulently forecloses on a home or a landlord illegally kicks people out, we know that that actually is associated with huge increases in death, deaths that actually dwarf the murder statistics that police rely on. And if we have a little bit of an expanded definition of preventable death, rather than the sort of very constrained definition of homicide that police departments report, I think we'd actually start to see a really different discussion about what are some of the solutions to that problem. But make no mistake, there has been increase this year in the number of police reported homicides. And I think it's important that we on the left actually talk about this issue and talk about why things like poverty and mental health care and gun sales and alienation in general from the things that connect us to other human beings and lack of access to art and music and theater and poetry and sort of ways of youth connecting to each other. These are the things that the evidence shows are actually connected to violence and they're precisely not the things that our society is actually spending billions and billions of dollars on in every single city around the country when we talk about the way that police spend their time. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, police only spend 4% of all of their time on what they themselves call violent crime. It's even less on murder. Right. Police have 
almost nothing to do with that issue. When Eric Levitz and Matt Iglesias say the criminology or the sociology is settled, because they don't just say it's like a contested thing. Eric Levitz literally says it's not a contestable point, that more police reduces crime. By extension, I think they infer murder. What are they citing? What is that study and why is it bullshit? Because this is like now kind of taken for granted in a lot of circles. And I really want to kind of explain why it shouldn't be. I debunked this stuff last year in my piece in Current Affairs called Why Crime Isn't the Question and Police Aren't the Answer. But there are just a few basic points. I mean, number one, they're using terrible data. Number two, the studies are actually quite weak and don't actually support the assertions that Levitz and Iglesias make about them. Number three, and this is probably most important, None of the studies that they cite, which are are all flawed and weak, even sort of methodologically, none of them actually measure whether... So most of the studies are actually like very short-term studies about flooding a particular area with police and then looking at what the very short-term effect of crime was, right? Right. So what they don't measure actually is, hey, when you flood a neighborhood police and arrest people and cage them and send them to prison and and then separate them from their children, their children grow up without a parent, what are the long-term criminogenic effects on crime? So they don't even look at that. Whereas some of the other broader literature actually tracks whether incarceration leads to more crime in the future and concludes that it does. But these short-term place-based studies don't even compare police to other alternatives. So these it would be totally consistent with these studies to flood a neighborhood with poets or artists or priests. They don't question whether the people flooding these neighborhoods need to have guns and need to be police officers, right? It could right. be after school programs, et cetera. And when you look at the other literature on the effectiveness of anti-poverty programs, community-based violence interruption, poetry, theater, music, art, athletic programs for kids, these all have like extremely high effectiveness rates, even on a long-term basis. So there's nothing particularly about the police in any of these studies. And then I think the most disingenuous and kind of fraudulent thing that they do is they use these points to argue for larger police budgets and to argue against reducing the size and power of police. Mm-hmm. They actually use this to argue against replacing police with mental health first responders and things like that. But in fact, because only 4% of police time is spent on violent crime, 96% of the time is not, you could actually reduce police budgets by 90% and still double the time and attention police give to these very particular strategies that Iglesias and Levitz and others rely on, mm-hmm. the so-called hot spot policing or emergency responder policing stuff that they contend from these studies actually reduces crime. So what's fascinating is that even the studies that they rely on are entirely consistent with massively defunding the extremely large and wasteful and kind of fraudulent police bureaucracy. We could double the amount of police time and attention spent on the tactics that they think score well in their studies and still reduce police by 90%. So in this summer of that I think we're seeing, you know, definitely a reactionary pushback to last year's uprisings, other related defund and abolitionist movements, the narrative is going to win, right? Like we can cite all the data we want, but there is a perception. And that perception helped along, of course, by the media's obsession with when it leads, it leads, is doing all of this kind of narrative work. And so this pushback, this backlash really against movements for justice, movements for less policing, movements for alternatives, movements for funding education and employment and the arts, things like that. That is really, I think, the media narrative, also the political narrative largely of the summer of 2021. 
What do you think, Alec, is a good way to kind of combat that? Yes, of course, we can point to data. We can say, okay, <laughs> police actually don't do shit about the stuff that you think you're scared of that probably isn't even out your front door, but, you know, down the cul-de-sac and then across town and then across the highway, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, that perception is definitely leading what we're hearing in this pushback. What would you say to kind of help along a more positive, less reactionary weaponized narrative? That's such a difficult question. I mean, I think there is a couple of components. There's a reason that people like Iglesias and Matt Taibbi more recently and Greenwald and Lee Fong and Eric Levitz and all these Substack writers, they never talk about the costs of policing. And I think what we saw last summer was an organic uprising or sort of mass set of thousands of uprisings all over the country because people saw very viscerally right in front of their faces in a way they couldn't ignore the incredible, extraordinary costs of the way that this country polices. And so there's a reason that those writers don't talk about the cost of policing, like surveillance, beatings, stabbings, family separation, sexual assaults, and domestic violence by police officers, which by the way, the police don't even keep track of. And if they kept track of sexual assaults, by police, it would totally change the crime rates in every major American city. That's how prevalent physical and sexual assaults are by police. Police don't even report those in when they give crime statistics. So these would entirely reverse the trends. And I think we have to do a better job of getting people to understand the extraordinary costs of policing. Another of the big costs, perhaps the biggest in my mind, is that the more you fund police and give them surveillance technology and weaponry, you enable police to do what they have done the last 140 years, which is to crush every movement for social and racial and gender justice that has ever occurred in this country. Every struggle for labor rights, every struggle for immigrant rights, every struggle for working class people and people who sort of want to make a better life that in a more equal society, mm -hmm. it's been the police that has infiltrated and brutally suppressed those movements. That is what police do. That is actually their primary function for the ruling class. And when you fund them more, you make it harder and harder to achieve all of the progressive social changes that even people like Taibbi and Iglesias and Fong claim that they want. What they don't understand is that the police have always been the tool that the ruling class uses to crush organizing by tenants, by workers, by women for many, many years, by people who are struggling in various formations in the queer movements. These are people who understand very, very deeply what the police are. And if we can change that narrative and get more and more people to understand, that's why I thought, for example, the, the videos last year of the NYPD crushing brutally the union picket line of the fruit and vegetable workers in New York City, asking for $1 a day extra during a pandemic to make sure people in New York had the fruit and vegetables they needed for their families to stay healthy. And NYPD crushed that revolt. Mm -hmm. And if you look back throughout history, in every decade of the 20th century, the police have brutally crushed labor organizing. So I think that one really important narrative for us to push back on is to give people a more clear understanding of what the police do. Let's look at how they spend their time. How much of their time is spent arresting people for being homeless, for low-level crimes like disorderly conduct or disobeying an order. One of the most common police arrests in this country is arresting people for driving on a suspended license when there are 11 million people who don't have licenses just because they're poor, because they can't pay fees and fines, not because they're bad drivers. That's actually the leading arrest in many jurisdictions in this country. So I think we need to give people a better sense of, of what police do. 
You bring up an excellent point, which is, forgive me, Lord, I cannot remember who said it on Twitter, and I always feel bad not accrediting, but someone said something to the effect of, like, Occupy showed that Black Lives Matter has to precede Occupy in some ways because of the disruption, the clubbings, the clearing out of Zuccotti Park, etc. And I thought that was sort of a good point. And one of the one piece of friction I, I think most urgently on that, not to steer from media criticism into like political theory, is that I don't see, if you play the tape to the end, I don't see any scenario where we have meaningful or urgent climate change or climate justice or climate justice mitigation, which is the effects of climate change. I don't see any scenario where that takes place without mass civil unrest by normal people. And I don't see any way in which that civil unrest can be meaningful when you have a well-funded, highly surveilled RoboCop-type police force. And that speaks to your point. And that is a, such an essential point because like, there's basically no meaningful social, urgent social issue that is not snuffed out by... Mm -hmm police from the IWW to present day climate change to what have you, right? So in many ways, it's kind of the hub of all these movements like you talked about. But what I wanted to ask you is this idea of crime existing on a ledger and that when we talk about, which we discussed at the top of the show, when you talk about crime, quote unquote, crime is this isolated thing that happens on the street. Forget all the wage theft and environmental destruction, all the other examples you bring up, even, even setting that aside, even if you sort of accept the very limited Matt Iglesias definition of crime, there's still this other side of the ledger of harm that's done with mass incarceration that no one ever fucking talks about. And this was one of the hardest things I did at the appeal when I had a podcast is like, we're talking about the kind of Willie Horton moral hazard of crime coverage. Is that like with the one exception of maybe when they see us, I can't think of very any pop culture depiction of the harm that that causes the actual dehumanization, the violence of prison, Sexual assault, the beating, the years lost, the money lost, the fathers who are lost, the daughters who are lost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is absolutely zero pop understanding of what those stakes are. And we talk about over-policing and sending away the bad guys as if it exists in some vacuum, as if it's just this kind of anodyne thing. I want you to talk about that other side of the ledger that never, ever, ever, ever gets talked about, right? If, if the local news let off every night with a story profiling a family that was broken up by someone in county, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands of people in county jail pre-trial, whether or not they didn't, they missed their son's first softball game or they didn't pay rent and their family was evicted, whatever it is, they lost their job, they dropped out of school. We would have a totally different concept of what is crime. So I want you to talk about that side of the ledger and how it's completely erased. And that is a very loaded question, but go ahead. I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask. And I want to just stop for a second and remember a few years ago when Trump was, was, you know, separating families at the border, much of liberal America was outraged. They adopted this phrase, kids in cages. Some people were outraged, protesting all over the place. And one thing that a lot of people didn't really fully appreciate at the time is that there are 3,163 local jails in this country where we separate children from their parents every single day. And the vast majority of people in those jails are separated from their children only because their parents can't pay a cash bail. That is how our legal system, police, prosecutors, judges, that is how our police sort of bureaucracy decides who should be with their children at home, who should be stuck in a cage of squalor and filth with no sunlight and exercise and fresh air and infectious disease and sexual assault. And so take something like the war on drugs. If you look at the costs of the war on drugs, not only has it been trillions of dollars over the last 40 years, but it caused over 50 million people to be caged 
about 20 million people from marijuana possession alone, tens of millions of children separated from their parents, hundreds of millions of police stopping and searching and probing people's bodies, including millions of times that police probe people's anuses and genitals for drugs. Not only did we cost tens of millions of people their education, their homes, and their ability to make a living, we also caused tens of millions of square acres of pristine land throughout Latin America to be spray poisoned. We surveilled the communications of billions of people around the globe. We basically eradicated the privacy in the Fourth Amendment. I could keep going on, right? There's many, many consequences, but maybe the most profound one is that we sentenced human beings to hundreds of millions of years in cages. And at the end of the day, after all of that, 40 years into the war on drugs, drug usage rates are higher in much of the country. Drug deaths are way higher than they used to be. Children are using dangerous drugs at higher rates. And all of this, mind you, while we legalize tobacco, which kills 450,000 human beings every single year, and alcohol, right? So there's, there's very particular political choices being made. But, but we engage in this war on drugs with all of those costs. And for all of the policing and prosecution and human caging, we actually made things worse. And we fundamentally need to get people to understand that police and cages and coercion and child and family separation are never going to make us safer as a society. Ever. You know, something we've seen lately in a number of different contexts, but I think the most recent one that I remember is a very, very localized poll that was conducted in Detroit. It was being touted as evidence to back the statement that communities suffering violence want more policing. They love cops and they want more cops. This has been making the rounds, this idea that sure, sure, Last year, there was the whole George Floyd protests and defund and yada, yada, yada. But now that we see the stats rise on quote-unquote crime, and it's reported on local news, it's on people's social media feeds, police are screaming about it, politicians are screaming about it, that actually when it comes down to it, that's just like a hippy-dippy fantasy. And, and really, the working class people who suffer from poverty and the violence caused by poverty actually aren't seeking alternatives. They just want more cops. What would you say to that? It's total nonsense. These polls that are supposedly relied on for this proposition are obviously, like all political polling by wealthy, powerful interests, the way that they ask the questions, the way they frame the answers are designed to get to the result that they want. That's number one. Number two, you have to remember, our population has been heavily propagandized for multiple generations. These are very politicized issues, and for the last 40 years, they have been being lied to about what the police do, how police spend their time. They've been lied to about how unequal our society is. The costs of policing that you just asked me about have been completely hidden from people. So this is a, an area that, that there has been a tremendous propagandistic focus on, and so it's not surprising even that people's initial views on police are misinformed in many respects. But I think there's a deeper point. If you actually look at the polling and you ask a different sort of question, what people are saying isn't that they want police. What people are saying is that they want safe places to live, good jobs, resources for their kids after school. They want to be in a community that thrives and flourishes. They want health care. They want to be healthy. They don't want to be poisoned. They don't want their water poisoned with lead. They don't want to be kicked out of their home by their landlord. They don't want to have their home foreclosed on by a bank. They don't want their wages stolen. And when you actually look at what people say they want, 
They want the things that the police are designed to prevent. And so what we need also is an organizing and political education that counters a lot of the propaganda that wealthy interests ha who own the media have spread through the last 40 years. And I think this is a very complicated, profound issue. One of the ways in which media sort of commonly does this is they ask very particular, very narrow, very specific polling questions, when if they asked a deeper sort of question, they'd get really different answers about what people's priorities are and what alternatives to policing people would actually prefer billions of dollars to be spent on than more people with guns and weapons and, and handcuffs. Yeah, because it's, I mean, look, if you run a protection racket, and if it's 1920 Chicago, and I have Al Capone defending my business from other mafias, and you ask me if I want to get rid of Al Capone, I'd say, well, no, because what, what the fuck else is there? Yeah. One of the things we've come across time and time again in this episode is that, like, we offer nothing else in return, using an even hackier metaphor. We, someone's drowning, and you throw them a piece of barbed wire to grab onto. They're going to grab onto it. They don't have any other option. <laughs> Police are the only option... The only way of adjudicating domestic violence, the only way of adjudicating car theft, the only way of adjudicating any of these stuff in some limited way, right? There's, there's nothing else to appeal to. You call 311, they're going to send a cop no matter what. Now, some people are trying to provide alternatives. Changing. Right? Social health workers, social workers, something that gets mocked. It appears that the current consensus now in the Democratic Party under the Biden administration and under the auspices of electoral pragmatism this is, you know, throw black people under the bus is always the cleverest thing you can come up with when you're trying to argue against any kind of left-wing reform. And so now you have this thing where Eric Adams was elected mayor in New York City that is now becoming the sort of counter-narrative. Chris Cuomo and CNN said... Will it, be elected mayor. Will be elected, sorry. It's a foregone conclusion, but yes, it has not happened <laughs> yet. Chris Cuomo, uh, James Carville was on CNN saying this. The New York Times wrote a puff piece on Eric Adams. The headline was... Why top Democrats are listening to Eric Adams right now? Some prominent Democrats think their party's nominee for mayor of New York offers a template for how to address issues of public safety. Now, this article four different times refers to, and I, knew, I know this is going to get under your skin. This is exactly what you're talking about. Four different times unironically refers to Eric Adams as the candidate of public safety. They referred to him as, quote, the most public safety-minded candidate in this year's mayoral primary, unquote. Now, this idea that being pro-police is, is interchangeable with public safety, I want you to comment on that. I want you to comment on the kind of, oh, look at Eric Adams. This is clearly showing that black and working class voters and black working class voters don't want to fund. They don't want any kind of this abolitionist hocus pocus. They want this nebulous reform that Eric Adams supposedly represents. But considering he was endorsed by the New York Post, we're going to go ahead and assume that that's all going to be bullshit. I want you to talk about the way Eric Adams has emerged as the kind of mascot for this liberal, carceral liberal reaction to George Floyd protest and black lives to say, because, again, because he's black, because he can sort of represent this pro-cop minority that everybody, that all these elites want to ventriloquize. I want to talk about that and talk about the broader narrative about public safety as being interchangeable with more police. I'm so glad you asked this question because I meant in your earlier question about how we counter this to say that one of the most important things we need to do is to take back this definition of what constitutes public safety. When the New York Times uses the term public safety, not only are they using a very narrow term that doesn't include things like, are people dying of preventable diseases? What does it mean to have a place to live or an apartment without mold? What does it mean to have my child get treatment for her asthma? There's so much that is encompassed in the concept of safety that has been left out by the policing and punishment bureaucracy, they want to narrow in. Um, and the only thing they want to consider 
safety related are the quote unquote crimes committed by the poor. They don't see anything else as connected to safety. We need to take that back because true, safe, thriving, flourishing lives are, are about so much more. But I think the other point is the New York Times, when it says public safety, whose safety is it talking about? Who does the New York Times actually concerned? You know, are they concerned about water poisoned with lead in poor communities? Are they concerned about the safety of people at Rikers Island and the safety of people in prisons all across New York State and the safety of children who have had their mom or dad ripped away from them? They're not concerned with that. They have a very particular concept of safety. And it's one that's heavily determined by who owns the New York Times, who advertises in the New York Times, and the sort of social circles that New York Times reporters and editors hang out in. And this is a fundamental challenge for those of us who want to take on these media circles, because a lot of these reporters just have not ever really experienced all of the various harms that our society inflicts on the poorest people in our society. And, and it's very hard to get them to see those things as safe and as connected to safety. So I personally think that these reporters are connecting policing to public safety because of all of the ways to further public safety, universal health care, massive investments in education and after school programs and theater and music and art and restorative justice and violence interruption programs run by community members. Of all of those ways, the only way to address safety that furthers the control and power of the ruling class is arming a bunch of people the ruling class controls with guns and cages and handcuffs. And so they choose that option and they connect that option with safety, not because it makes people safer in any kind of holistic sense of the word, but because it furthers other political goals that they have. Well, right, because public safety is actually just like, you know, well, who is constituting the quote unquote public in that definition? And it is those moneyed interests. It is like the friends of the reporters or, or it is those politicians that are trying to absolutely destroy whatever momentum there is toward justice or expanded civil rights and, and certainly a decrease in, say, police funding uh, because there's this like direct correlation, I think, that's made between safety equals money toward people with guns who are wearing uniforms and with guns. Like, there's this kind of like the idea, as you said, Alec, of expanding the definition of what public safety means. I think there's just, unfortunately, so far to go in our kind of, you know, collective consciousness in the public imagination because it has been so deliberately suppressed. And it, it kind of gets to the last thing that I want to ask you, which is what are you working on at Civil Rights Corps that really speaks to this? And of course, the broader work that you are all doing. Tell us a bit about Civil Rights Corps and how people can get involved. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about our work. I mean, I, I think at a very high level, for the last few years, we've been working on things like the cash bail system, the incredible network of pretrial human caging all over this country. We cage human beings pretrial at a rate that no society in recorded history of the modern world has ever done. About 500,000 human beings in jail cells every single night in this country just because they can't pay cash bail or are otherwise detained prior to their trial. We've also been doing a lot of work on the criminalization of poverty and the way in which much of the criminal punishment bureaucracy, the, actually the vast bulk of the cases that are processed by police and prosecutors and judges are actually very low level cases designed to generate revenue and designed to control people in their lives. So all over the country, we have lawsuits challenging, caging people just because they can't make payments, challenging the privatization of debt collection, challenging 
the taking away of people's driver's licenses just because they can't pay, challenging, as I mentioned, people being caged pre-trial because they can't pay money bail. It, at a very high narrative level, to sort of loop it back to this discussion, I think we're, we're doing some really subversive stuff. So we're, we're saying to people, did you know that the way that these quote-unquote law enforcement, I use that term in quotes because they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time, but did you know that, that law enforcement, the way they decide who is in a cage and who is separated from their families, who has access to enough cash? And, and people are shocked by that. Ordinary people all over the country, they've never really thought about the bail system before. But once they learn about it, I think it subverts their sense that the system has any integrity. Because if it's making that important decision about whether a child should be home with her mom and able to hug her mom on the basis of how much cash the mom has, how can they trust anything else the system is telling them? How do they trust all the myths the system is giving them if the system is doing that? And the same is true with the criminalization of poverty. If, if people are being jailed for profit just because they can't pay fines, how can we trust all of the other decisions that these people, these bureaucrats are telling us are done for our own safety? Because the vast bulk of what they're doing has no conceivable relation to safety at all. So I think our work in, in some respects, all over the country, in local communities where we have partners, everywhere we go, we try, you know, we're not as good at this as we would like, but we try to work with local organizers and activists and people who are directly impacted to try in some way to change these narratives, to challenge them, to offer different voices and to tell the stories of the costs of the system so that people can have a really different understanding from what they're told in the mainstream media every single day. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. We've been speaking with Alec Karakatsanis, founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Previously, Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender in the District of Columbia and state of Alabama and co-founder of the organization Equal Justice Under Law, the author of usual cruelty and you can follow him on twitter at equality alec alec thank you so much again for joining us today on citations needed thank you so much it was so fun yeah and when we say the media shapes these perceptions of crime and, and hypes crime again regardless of what the data says before this recent alleged murder spike crime spike what have you in media criticism, you rarely get data that shows that there is manipulation going on in such a stark way as you do with perceptions of crime versus actual crime. According to Pew, in 20 of the 24 Gallup surveys conducted between the year 1993 and 2020, at least 60% of U.S. adults have said there is more crime nationally than there was the year before, despite the general downward trend in national violent and property crime rates during most of that period, according to... All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm just going to take a bit of a break here. Um, we have been sharing a podcast from uh, Citations Needed. This was episode 142, which came out on August 4th. Do have a lot of other info to get to on the show today. Going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with some more. Going up a song called Wandering Star by Polisa.
Oh, okay. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, low energy today. Did want to share some upcoming events that are happening. And if you happen to be listening right now live on Thursday, September 9th, um, tonight is the art auction. It's the Coalition on Homelessness 21st Art Auction. And there is a live auction happening tonight, September 8th. Excuse me, September 9th, uh, live at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time. There's uh, silent auction bidding, which um, opens tonight at 5.30 p.m. There's also a silent auction bidding, and which closes and raffles announced on September 23rd at 12 noon. And I thought there's also other ways you can also, um, if you can't make it tonight, also support um, the art auction. Take a look right now while... We uh, <laughs> shared this info. Yeah, just, uh, there's a lot going on. And also I recognize that in the podcast that we just shared lots of information there as well. All right, so there's a link to the webinar where you can register to be part of the live auction tonight on Thursday, and I'm also going to see, because I do recognize some folks may be listening to this afterwards, I'm going to see about other ways, okay, that you can support art, I mean, how great is that, you get to support people, you buy art, um, it's a, it's a win-win, so, yeah, live auction happening tonight, and, Let's see. Bidding closes at September 23rd at noon. Okay, so it opens tonight, and it closes September 23rd at noon. So if you can't make it tonight, Thursday the 9th, you can still bid um, until September 23rd. I'm going to post a link to this info on our website, weeklyrev.org, where you can find the art auction info. And that's for no matter where you are in the world. Um, you can help support. You can also make a donation, and you can support the Coalition on Homelessness. So please do that. And uh, yeah, also if you type in Coalition on Homelessness uh, San Francisco, you should be able to find that info there before we put it up here on our website. Ooh, I'm tired. I'm also just dehydrated. It's also just a lot. There's a lot. Excuse me. Mm. That was very, very professional. I <laughs> um, also wanted to share another event that's happening. Um, this is happening from the EFF, which is the Electronic Frontier uh, Foundation. Yeah, that's what they are, right? Um, yeah, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF. They do a lot of work in terms of rights in regards to tech and ethics in tech. So next Wednesday, September 15th, from 9 p.m. to 5 p.m., there's going to be an online event called Fire and Fury, Growing a Monkey Wrench at Big Tech. And um, this is by the Ethics in Technology Coalition. Ethics in Tech invites you to a full-day conference on the role Big Tech plays in surveillance, war, and peace. Ethics in Tech is a member of the EFF, a network of grassroots organizations across the country uh, committed to promoting digital rights. Please check out their event page to learn more. And then they say, uh, from the organizers, hear from activists and community leaders on what matters most as it relates to surveillance, war, and peace. Ethics and Tech brings you a full day of speakers, including privacy and peace activists, journals, journalists, and other experts in the field, all topped with some end-of-day stand-up comedy. Please join in. Tickets are available 
at the button below on a sliding scale. And if you use the promo code EFA, you can save 30% on tickets. And you can feel free to share the code on any form of communication, including social media. All right. So if you click on the link, our next event. Ooh, there's a video. I'm, I'm clearly all about playing videos and uh, hearing other people's voices today. So let's share this. Oh, it's just a link to the website. It's not an actual video. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. Free novel. Ethics in tech and lack thereof. Sleeping under the cell tower tells... Oh, cool. There's like a book about that too. You can get a free download of it called um, Ethics in Tech and lack thereof. Cool. So we'll also share a link to this on our website. And yeah, did want to share these events. What else is there? Oh, there's so much else that's going on too. There's an article I'm not going to get a chance to read, but I did want to share the headline of, and we'll post a link to it on our website. Oh, I've got so many tabs open. Um, How to Give Land Back. This is from Shareable, and this just came out September 7th, 2021, by Aaron Fernando. So we'll share that. I also, ahead of time, tend to... Um, oh, goodness. Oh, there's so many articles. Uh, if you were to see... This list here there's at least 10 articles that uh, haven't quite gotten to yet there's also i haven't mentioned it on the show too much about line three resistance and of course the powers that be are trying to build another fucking pipeline line three replacement pipeline uh, tar sands oil export um it received final permit approval in november 2020 and they were going to finish construction in minnesota and so far many people have been protesting this and unfortunately so far, there have been nearly 150 arrests of water protectors by the end of 2021. There's a lot of information on it um, at Unicorn Riot, um, including videos. And um, this is in St. Louis County, Minnesota. Um, yeah, let's see if we can get some audio from this as well. Never seems to be enough time to get to everything. Locking down today because I am a descendant of colonizers. I am of European descent. My family line goes back to the Mayflower. Um, I'm the 13th generation in my family to be colonizing this land. I learned that over two years ago. It really made me have to reflect and have to think about where I fit in the scheme of the history of colonization. That. Um, has never stopped. This is colonization. This is what it looks like. This is the extraction of natural resources. This is the genocide of indigenous people. And it's happening now in my lifetime, like it's been happening for hundreds of years. And we all have to reflect on what we're doing here and how much we're willing to sacrifice but actually how much we're willing to gain in order to do what's right.
have uh, allies over here on this beautiful uh, trailer. Uh, 14 people locked down to it. And then over here, probably about 100 yards down the road, you have indigenous women, femmes, two-spirit, and men locked to a car to try to stop uh, Enbridge workers from accessing the site, leaving or entering. Now, locked down to this van is indigenous people. We are fucking rising up, we're here. Our direct support, indigenous people. Brown people did this, BIPOC people did this. Fuck yes. Indigenous led, this is indigenous run. This is the way to fucking do it. This is our fucking right as indigenous people because we are the earth defending itself. That's what people say. I love that. We are, we're the earth defending itself. This is thrivance. This is community thrivance. When the land is under attack, when the waters are under attack, we fucking stand up and we fight back. And there is joy in that. This is Fuck radical yeah. joy. I will not stand by and watch this shit happen. Just like everyone here will not stand by and watch this shit happen. We've seen it happen. We know what happens. We're in solidarity with indigenous people and struggles all over. Not just here in the so-called United States, not just in so-called Canada, but also in fucking Palestine. We're here to resist the continued genocide and enslavement of indigenous peoples. Uh, and we're here to extend in solidarity with indigenous peoples and any disenfranchised person who's being affected and destroyed by the spreading of global capitalism. We are here to be good relatives, not only to the Anishinaabe or the people of this territory, but to the land and to the water. We are here with you. We are sending our love to all the front lines out there, all of the indigenous front lines that are holding it down. They took actions yesterday. They took actions today and will continue to take actions from here on forward because indigenous resistance does not die. We do not die. They are temporary. We are forever. Fuck line three. Fuck Enbridge. Fuck all corporate profit, fuck capitalism, fuck colonialism, fuck Biden, fuck all that settler colonial bullshit. In this moment, we're recognizing the power that we have, our individual power, our collective power, and we're taking it back. We're no longer allowing these systems to tell us that, uh, that they're going to allow the bureaucracy to push this pipeline through the community, that they're going to allow uh, the trafficking of indigenous women um, and that they're going to continue to put this ongoing you know, colonization um, through our homelands. This is indigenous land. This is indigenous land. will not stop fighting line three. They can continue to push this down people's throats here in Northern Minnesota, but we're not gonna tolerate this. It's done, we're drawing the line here. And we're gonna continue fighting, continuously fighting, even when it is all continuously buried. Line three will be shut down, no questions asked. I'm currently playing some videos from Unicorn Riot. You can find more info at unicornriot.ninja. And of course, this all ties in because the folks who are arresting the water protectors are cops. 
I'm going to play one more video, and then I'll be wrapping up the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. For more info, go to weeklyrev.org. You can find ways to support the show, help spread the word, donate, etc. And check out previous episodes as well. Jill just uh, showed up this morning. They're currently just right on the other side of this fence here, uh, putting the drill together, putting the drill pad together. Uh, this is the longest site of the entire uh, route uh, for them to go. I think it's about a quarter mile. They have to go underground. So we're thinking it might take them a few weeks, but it's taking them eight days for 50 day projects. So. You know, if they say it's a replacement, but it's not a replacement, they're just um, putting a bigger pipe in there and the old ones will rust, decay, and eventually break and spill. And there's never not been a company not to spill. So there's 22 crossings and that's a lot of chances for it to mess up. They already busted through one aquifer poisoning uh, and ruining it. So there's a lot of chances there for that to happen again. Water is life. That's why we're here, that's why we're standing here. Not only for ourselves, but for future generations and even the people who don't understand, but we're here for them too. So there's plenty of more videos here. Like there's a lot more. Um, so please do support um, all the folks, the water protectors and also Unicorn Riot who has shared all this info. Um, and we have a link to the page over at ours, weeklyrev.org, and that'll be up later today. Um, okay, gonna play some music and then we'll be, we'll be out. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Um, hopefully this show was informative and uh, provided some ways that folks can show up and try to make the world a little bit more equitable. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week.
Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs. <laughs> Listeners, it is Wednesday, uh, February 1st. I cannot believe it is February 1st, 2017. You are listening. You are listening to the Mutiny Radio.fm. You're listening to the AltaCast here on Mutiny Radio. I am joined today by the wonderful, the always amazing. Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth. Hey, happy hey. Black History Month. It's Black History Month! Yes, not I, for long. I thought about that this morning. Uh, we are also joined by new Mutiny Radio mutineer, Kaysen Wise. Good morning, ladies, and hey. happy Black History Month. Yeah. Welcome to the family. <laughs> Thank you. Very feel, Very welcome. He's still working on his, the title of his show that's going to be every Tuesday from 2 to 4. Uh, and it's a it's a bi city. It's a double city. That's true. We are a single coast bi city. We're in Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's gonna be doing some range. interviews and cool things down there. I don't have enough LA. friends in one city. I had to make some in a second one. 
take guests any way I can get them is pretty much it. But yes, we don't have a title yet, but that doesn't stop Pam from advertising and pushing us out there, which I appreciate. So thank you, Pam. <laughs> no problem. Uh, so yeah, this is the Ultracast. We are now uh, news partners not only with the Drug Policy Alliance, which is awesome. Uh, they've been uh, pushing drug policy reform, uh, specifically around harm reduction. And uh, so that's great. We've been working with them for a while now, thanks to Melissa Moore. And now we are partnered with NARL, uh, the pro-choice nationalist, the national pro-choice group. Uh, they bought food for me on Saturday. Wow. <laughs> there was a bunch of comedians. Narl's really interesting because they are using comedians to get their information out there, which is amazing that they think that we have any value. Because we're not <laughs> fake, fake news. Because we're not. Well, there's so much fake news out there that it's all like, at this point, it's all opinion, you know? And when news first started, Kason was talking about this yesterday, when news first started you in before the 60s, you couldn't have a, a one opinion without the same amount of airtime from the opposite opinion. You just couldn't do that. And now we have huge news outlets that have their own bias. That, and they're completely honest about their bias. I mean, you know when you're going to Fox News what you're getting. Horseshit. You know. Right. <laughs> but it's the same thing. When you know you're going to the AltaCast and you're listening to this, you know that you're going to get... Real shit. The real shit. The, well, <laughs> the real truth as filtered uh, behind our, our socialist eyes. Or as I'd like to call myself now, Marxist. Um... This is, I didn't, I don't know when we're going to, I don't know how it's going to come up, if we should let it come up organically or if we should address the elephant in the room. Uh, Kaysen is not of the Democrat persuasion, nor of the Green Party, nor of the independents. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, no, this is this is the truth. So this is, uh, this the is a great first impression I'm going to have to come up with is I am actually a registered Republican. <laughs> Don't throw things just yet. I didn't vote for any of this nonsense, and I'm not a fan of most of it. But I am one of those Republicans that uh, thinks, uh, in general terms, uh, women should have rights. Uh, we should all have equal rights. Black lives do matter. Uh, of, I'm of this ilk, but also I think fiscal responsibility is important. Which it's not to say that Democrats and others don't, but I would like to fight the party from the inside and make it a better party. I have kind of an idealism about it, and it's sucking right now, and I really wish I could change it. So basically, you are the party of Lincoln, technically. Ah. Because originally, that's what Republicans were. Yes. So yeah. technically, you're OG Republican. Yes. Not not the Reagan Republicans no. or the Eisenhower. More of like the 1860 Republican. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's, cool. She caught and that very quickly. You, yes, did it, so. you didn't call him your favorite word. Oh, Republicans. Yes. Republican. Uh, because there's no because I I'm from the Midwest and I know different types of Republican Republicans and Republicans. Um, <laughs> Republicans. And I, I I'm actually you know the thing is the difference between those is like what I just described as the more party of Lincoln right. rather than those of the party of Reagan. Uh, big difference. The difference is is exactly what you were just describing of what an OG Republican is. That's actually the uh, definition of what it was supposed to be. Hmm. Now it has turned into a side freak show, <laughs> and I've, it's not even a party. I'm anymore. calling him 45 now. I'm not gonna dignify him with a name. Cheeto. I'm just gonna call him 45. I like that. I heard someone else calling him. 45. Yeah, it's uh, Stacy from Unleash the Rain started doing it, and I was like, I love it because I hate to say his name, and they were really interested interesting about they said it's he is our president uh so this whole not my president thing is ridiculous yeah but i agree that we he, he needs to start acting presidentially 
Uh, yeah, and the thing is, it's not going to happen. Now, I don't see... Because he doesn't is, know how... He doesn't know how to. He's never been taught. He's never learned. He's never studied. He's never he's been studied. in any... And I don't think he has any interest in learning either. He does But it's, there's a certain way that you're supposed to present yourself as the leader of the free world, or at least of this particular nation. I mean, I hate to say that you're the leader of the free world if you're the American president. You know, I don't necessarily believe in that either. I think that the free world is much bigger than the hubris of the American manifest destiny dream or whatever we're doing uh, but he's not acting presidentially this tweeting thing this tweeting thing is the least this is like, you're like a junior high girl tweeting how is this how can we put a gag order on the entire government and yet tweet everything out it just seems so childish and bizarre to me and it's becoming kind of kind of routine the press secretary was showing off tweets in his press conference a few days ago as like is this is news we should talk about like taking it seriously it's crazy this is the other in in other weird facebook news jonathan uh, he was in, he was in high school he went to a really rich high school at santa monica high uh, he was bussed in from Inglewood, so he. But he went to Santa Monica High, and there was the guy who was voted most likely to succeed, and he was a dick in high school. He is now like the guy that you see on the news. He's one of the press guys. He's he's a speechwriter, and he's this young guy. And Jonathan showed me yesterday. He's like, this guy was such a dick in high school. He was like, this guy was seriously like nobody. Like he had one friend, and and he was voted most likely to, to achieve or whatever because he was such a dick, and he was such like a hardcore. And now he's one of Trump's 45's main guys. And we saw him all over the news with the White House stuff. And Jonathan was like, of course. Of course. No. He has a small dick. I'm just going to... Most people, I think most people are, most of the dudes in that whole administration have small dicks. And See, even this is with, a legitimate news show. Yeah, it is. And the fact of the matter <laughs> is just tell. like... <laughs> People are, I think people need to get a little bit more upset, not with even just Trump, but you know his other lynchmen, it's, uh... Bannon? Yeah! The Jew-hating, ugly, crater-faced son of a bitch. Who I believe is kind of the Cheney to his bush, which is yeah. he's kind of a mastermind and the real one we should be looking at. Yeah, I'm totally, the puppet. And Sessions, he's another terrible, oh, Sessions as well. Yes. All of them, all of them are good and terrible. And I didn't know Pence called his wife mother. You, oh my god. Do you know how Norman Gross. Bates of that is mm. I mean you know Norman Bates the character in Psycho would call his mother mother because he was in love with his mother well and when there's just a little I remember wow, I didn't know that it's I, really he calls her calls her mother is huh? he call his he calls his wife mother oh god well because the mother of the children there's a thing like that they do there's an old movie or whatever where they call they call her they call the mom wife mother because it's somehow I don't know maybe because back in the back in the oldie days you had um, a mistress that you slept with and that was the sexy one and the other one that just had the babies was the mother and so you just called a mother oh my god it's like another way of identifying women as what they are used for or can be used for like you are just mother material exactly right, yeah. uh, how do they just you don't need to make up any material about these guys sometimes you can just they can just talk and you can have such great stuff come out of their mouth it, by great I mean horrible it's so scary uh, so let's get into our first one here this is from the Drug Policy Alliance uh, yay drugs the yeah, drugs. This came out this morning. Um, press release from the Drug Policy Alliance. Senate Judiciary votes to advance nightmare Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. 
Uh, this it's, it's terrible. And in the actual headline. In quotations, yeah. But this is also we're getting it from the Drug Policy Alliance, so the word's a little bit skewed. Uh, but on the cover of the Drug Policy Alliance website right now, they have a link button that you can immediately contact your senator. So please, please, please go to Drug Policy Alliance uh, at drugpolicy.org and click on that so that you can talk to your senator right away 